0: And maybe sometimes having a a, a few away allows a bit more interactivity. So I will throw some questions out to you. Um, And I guess let me start with names. How many of you were named your name for a particular reason? Or do you know why you were given the name you were? This is embarrassing. But my dad really liked the show Bewitched, so I was named after the witch on Bewitched. That was my dad's decision. Oh, there you go. How many knew that? It's not a you've very highbrow you. story, but that's my name. Yeah, yeah. There you go, Michael. You even got your father to ask him if you did not That's this. right. <laughs> that's what your mother wanted. She <laughs> <laughs> wanted a Bible name. Uh, there you go. Alright, anyone else? Yeah, my middle name, it's kind of like a family tradition where the oldest son gets the father's first name as his middle name. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, my, my father is Daryl and I'm Darren and I'm sure it seemed like a brilliant idea at the time to have that sort of connection from father to son. And um, the funny thing is, now, half the time I go places where people sort of half know either of you you'll get Daryl or Darren and these days I just ignore it and carry on I know who they're talking about and then they get very embarrassed later when they realize they've done the wrong thing but <laughs> I just, that doesn't matter um, So yeah it's, it, I guess it's interesting when you when you think about names um, we, we had great difficulty naming our children. No, we didn't have great difficulty. We, we set up this thing. The first two were easy to name. Um, we started off with two boys. Um, and then we realised, once we had the two boys, that we'd, we'd set up a few rules inadvertently. And I say rules, um, which we didn't have to follow. But once we'd done it, we, we kind of liked it. They both have a Y and an A in their name, which is the beginning of Yahweh, which is one of the names of God. So we thought, hey, that's kind of neat. Let's keep that going. So all our kids um, have a Y and an A in it. Um, and then um, Rosie, by background, is a primary teacher. Um, so that ruled out a certain range of names of kids she had in her classes that were absolute rat bags. And so, therefore, that name has certain associations. And no, we cannot use that. Um, and of course, you know, working with people too, there's, there's, you know, if you work with people, there's some names you, you might use, and there's other, other names that once you associate that name with a particular person, there's no way ever, ever you could use that name. Um, and so then you go through the process of of naming your children um, and hoping that none of them end up being strange um, names when shortened or lengthened or you know initials and all those things you, you work through. Um, and in our case because we, we we've got five children, we had a few names to come up with along the way. Um, but we didn't run out. It's, it's also one of those funny things um, in Australian culture where we we then end up giving people nicknames. Um, so one friend I have, he's a terrible decision maker. He is slow. So everyone calls him Speedy. Uh, that's what you do, isn't it? Um, and and so it goes. Um, the, the ones that really keep you amused, if you want to go and do some searches, is go back to 16th and 17th century Puritan England. Because the Puritans didn't just name people, giving somebody a name was an opportunity to make a statement. Um, And if you're familiar with, um, you know, some in, in Burmese culture, that happens a little bit with some of the Burmese names, where they're, they're more statements than actual names as such. They become names. So the Puritans did things like this. You know, short name, zeal for the Lord, search the scriptures, or help on high. They were all registered names that some poor kid was given. Um, then, the ones that really make you wonder what the parents were saying when they named the child, names like sorry for sin, wonder what that one's about, <laughs> flea fornication, or there's another registered one which was more fruit. I don't know that there was a health thing to it, but anyway. Then you had the long ones. Names like Jesus Christ came into the world to save, or fight the good fight of faith. You know, what, what's the abbreviation of that poor kid's name? Um, there's there was there was one more, Job raked out of the ashes. I don't know what they were thinking. Um but the one I, my, my personal favorite, and you have to forgive me for this one. The name was, if Christ had not died for thee, thou hadst been damned. Now, this particular poor guy became a doctor and had the surname Barebones. Seriously, this is, this is historically verifiable names. And so he simply became known as Dr. Damned Barebones. Poor guy. Um when you come to the Bible, names meant things. So so let me you know, throw it out. When you when you come across names in the Bible, are there any names that you immediately come to that have an association of something that they mean? What is some what's the first one that springs to mind for you? Judas. Okay, Judas? Not a positive association, is it? Uh, all right, any others? Thomas, doubt. Yep, one, one word immediately leads to the next. Actually, Thomas is an interesting one because it, it, our, our view of the doubting Thomas is much more a Western view than an Eastern view. If you go to India, Thomas is the great evangelist. Um, a very different view of Thomas. Uh, yeah, any others? Job, yeah, suffering, patience. Um. Now, if you go to someone like Jacob, Jacob initially when he was born was a twin. Um, he came out after his elder brother and he was grasping the heel of his brother. So Jacob literally meant heel grasping. You can find that you know, in the Bible. Of course, as, as time went on, Jacob came to be an even less flattering name because it came to be associated with deception, and therefore Jacob equaled deceiver. Um, and so when God comes to him and renames him and gives him the new name of Israel, um, it has a whole new meaning, which replaces that sense of supplanter or heel grasper or deceiver and it means a whole lot more. Um, Some of the other names that that came up through Bible times, James and John, um, they were sons of thunder. I think that would have been interesting characters to know. Um, You have, in the days of um, Samuel the prophet, um, you you, you may remember the story where um, Eli, who essentially raises Samuel, has two of his own sons, Hophni and Phineas, And they were not so good. They, they took advantage of their position, they abused their position, they abused their power uh, in the temple, and eventually they, they go to the point where they just take the Ark of the Covenant, they go out into battle because this is the, you know, the icon that's going to win them the battle, and of course it didn't happen. Um, they die, the Ark of the Covenant is captured, news comes back to Eli, he's sitting out the front there on a you know, some sort of seat, um, he's so shocked by the news, he falls over, he dies, he falls off the chair and he's an old man, fatal, dies. And the news comes back to Phineas's wife. We don't have a name for her other than Phineas's wife, so Mrs Phineas is in labour... And she's about to give birth. She gives birth. And she names her poor son, Ichabod. What do you think, okay, Ichabod, strange name. Literally translated means the glory has departed. So imagine going through your whole life. Oh, who are you? Oh, I'm, the glory has departed. Tough name, isn't it? Come with me to Acts chapter 4 because this is, this is where we want to pick up Barnabas. In Acts chapter 4, if you ever want to um, have an interesting time, you can pick out different names of characters and just follow through uh, their lives. And Barnabas is one of those ones that normally plays a background role in the Bible, Barnabas kind of is just there doing his thing in the background. He gets mentioned every so often through the book of Acts and one or two other places. But we don't really notice him too much because we're really much more busy looking at what Peter's doing or what Paul's doing or, you know, the ones that we know. But let's look at Barnabas. The first verse we, we look at is Acts chapter 4 and verse 36. And... Let's read the verse, and then I want to give it context, because the verse, just in isolation, doesn't always give us the full picture. Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, that's our first introduction to Barnabas. But what's his actual name? His name isn't actually Barnabas, his name is Joseph. And yet nobody knows him as Joseph. Um, We know he's a Levite and we know he's from Cyprus. So what does that tell us? Well, we know in terms of the Levites, if you go back into the Old Testament, the Levites were the ones that in their righteous anger would protect what was right and therefore became the priests. Um... What else do we know about Levites? It doesn't really tell us a lot about Barnabas, but we know he was a Levite. In fact, if you think about it, in the New Testament, there's only one or two other references, and one of them was in a parable that Jesus told, which was the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, three people walk past. You've got a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And the Levite doesn't come out in that story looking too good because the Levite the priest is the one that walks on the other side of the road. So there's not a lot of um, association with that that immediately sets us off in a positive direction. Um, Joseph, common name, just... It actually, again, it literally means, you know, God will enlarge or Jehovah God increases. Um... Relatively common name we would understand, but that's that's about that. He's from Cyprus. Does that tell you, anything? do you know anyone from Cyprus? I don't personally know anyone from Cyprus. I think there was a tennis player going back a few years that was notable here in Melbourne, one tennis open in terms of Marcos Bengtas, or however you pronounce his name. Um... Cyprus, again, there's nothing that stands out about Cyprus. Cyprus is connected to the word copper because copper was mined there for centuries. It was kind of just one of the islands there in the Mediterranean that would change hands amongst the great powers. They were never powerful or significant in themselves. And so you've got both Barnabas, um, who seems to play a background role from a place that seems to just play a background role with a name that is not extraordinary in terms of Joseph, with a you know, connection as a Levite that doesn't leap out at us. So, So there's no standout feature as such thus far until you start looking at who he was in terms of what he did. So, first thing we're told here that probably does stand out in this verse is that he is known as Barnabas, which literally translated... Is son of encouragement. So if you were to have, I don't know if you've ever spent time wandering around a cemetery, um, I have a handful of times. It's an interesting exercise to see what people write (coughs) on their gravestones. Um, If you had to have something written on your gravestone, three, four words, a short sentence, what would you like to be on your gravestone? With Barnabas, his name on his gravestone would have been son of encouragement. I reckon that'd be a pretty good thing to have written on your gravestone. Wouldn't it? Don't know a whole lot else about him, but he was a son of encouragement. So let's look at context, because context starts to tell us something. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it has these words, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. That sort of reference we get twice in the book of Acts. The other times back in chapter 2, I think it is, where, you know, this sense where they held everything in common. And some people look at that and say, hey, there's the template of the early church. That's what we should do. So, you know, put all your wallets into the common property and it belongs to everyone. Remember, though, that as you go through the book of Acts and as circumstances change, so the church changes in the way it deals with it. So here at the beginning, where are the believers? All the believers are in Jerusalem. No one's... You know, there's there's others that have believed in Jesus, but in terms of the beginnings of the Christian church post-Jesus returning to heaven, this is this is it, they're in Jerusalem. They haven't spread yet. So it's practical and feasible to hold everything in common. It worked. But then a few things happen. And and in Acts chapter 5, which we'll look at in a little bit more detail, two things. Firstly, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which we'll look at because it tells us something about Barnabas. Um, The second thing that happens is persecution breaks out. And when persecution breaks out, they start to spread. And there's no more mention in the Book of Acts to them holding everything in common in this way. There is mention of them giving offerings. There is mention of them supporting the the weaker, um, supporting those in need. You know all of those sort of things. But their structure is subservient to their mission, to their, their purpose. So this is this is um, Barnabas. Barnabas comes puts this a lump of money at the disciples' feet, at the apostles' feet, and says, end of story. Along come Ananias and Sapphira. So as the story is told, Ananias and Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Now, we have to assume that there are some subplots going on that we're not necessarily led into, because if we don't have these subplots in play, it's a pretty disturbing story in many ways because they sell the land, they tell a lie, God strikes them dead. That's essentially the story. Um, and without further explanation, you think, wow, that seems pretty arbitrary on the part of God to do that. So when you look at the story, let's contrast it. Here's Barnabas, sells the land, puts all the proceeds of the apostles' feet, and that's the end of it. There's no more mention of it. You know, his name's not there in a plaque on the building that was constructed from the funds that Barnabas gave or any of that sort of thing. It's just done. Ananias and Sapphira come along, and they, as we read the story, obviously have made this public commitment that they are going to give the proceeds of the sale of this land to the church. And then I imagine when they finally sell the property, perhaps they, they get an absolute cracker of an offer to the point where they have made far more than they expected on this property. And in comes temptation. What's the temptation? The temptation is simply this. We can still take what looks like the proceeds of this property and give it to the church and we will look really good. And we can keep a nice little lump for ourselves and no one need ever know. But we'll look good. And they're given opportunity to own up to the fact that you know, they've, they've been telling a few lies here. Um, because what it just says in chapter 5 and verse 2 is with his wife's full knowledge he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then you get these repeated conversations with Ananias and then Sapphira, um, with with Peter, where it's very clear that the lie that they are perpetuating, the corruption they are allowing to creep into the church is not just about them, it's actually about God. So it's not about trying to deceive each other, it's actually that they think they can deceive God. And, and the only conclusion that I can come to on this one is if that corruption had been successful, it would have so knocked the early church off course that God had to intervene to preserve the church and, and you know, the direction of the church. And so you know, you have this bizarre circumstance where one, you know, first one falls dead and then the other comes in and the thing repeats and they, they are both taken out and buried. But the contrast is this, Ananias and Sapphira in giving, it's all about them. Barnabas, when he gives, it's all about God. And while it's recorded, it's, I think it's recorded as a contrast, where one seeks to do it to puff themselves up, the other is just, he just humbly gives it, um, he doesn't attach strings to it, he just gives it. There it is use it as it's needed. And the temptation is always, particularly I think that the bigger the sum of money, um, the temptation is to always try and attach strings to it. Because then we have some control, so we think. Um, And yet it's one of these great human fallacies that we, we persist with. That somehow we can control money or life or possessions when in reality we control far less than we imagined we might. You know, one day we can have good health. You know, one lady I, I visited yesterday, um, two weeks ago she'd been feeling a bit ill, but life was good. Friday, went to the doctor. She'd had a few tests. And she got the diagnosis of cancer. Wednesday, Monday she was admitted to hospital. Wednesday she started chemo. Um, you know, last night, She's there in hospital, can't eat, can't keep anything down. Life's changed like that. We can't control them. And, and this whole idea that Ananias and Sapphira could control um, you know, their, their PR, that they could control you know, what was going to happen with it or that they could keep some of it and keep control of that, it was never the case. And, and neither is it the case for us. And, and you know, one of the, the things that um, I, I guess I've been challenged by in some recent conversations with with some Muslim friends is how they will often preface or finish a statement about the future by saying, you know, inshallah or God willing. Uh, it's true. We lay plans for the future. We you know we, we buy houses. I you know we we buy houses because we want that security and that base and You know, for for all the range of reasons we do it, and it's not wrong, don't hear me saying that, because we bought a house a few years ago, too. But there are no guarantees. It is God willing. And Barnabas, by way of contrast to, to Ananias and Sapphira, he is much more humble. He's, yeah, anyway, we've made the point on that one. But let's follow Barnabas through, because. Barnabas doesn't then get another mention until we roll over to Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, and we'll go down to verse 26, we come across um, Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. So Saul, you know, the one that's been persecuting and killing Christians and and, um, who's there at the stoning of Stephen, giving his approval to it, You know, Saul is the the zealot, um, and in the beginning of chapter 9, you get the whole conversion experience of Saul. He goes on to Damascus, where, um, you know, obviously more happens there. And then, in verse 26, it says, "...when he came to Jerusalem." So he's been in Damascus, he's had his conversion experience, he comes back to Jerusalem. Now put yourselves in the shoes of those early Christians because what it says is he tried to join the disciples but they were all afraid of him. It makes sense when you think about it because he had been after them, persecuting them, imprisoning them. Um, The centre of that had been Jerusalem. He'd been on this trip to Damascus to start it up there. He's converted, he comes back. What are you going to be thinking of? of him as Christians. What's your first thought? Is it real? Is it genuine? Or is this just a ploy whereby he can get in with us, identify who the Christians are and lock a whole lot more up? So let me ask you, without knowing, pretend you don't know the rest of the story with Saul at this point, if Saul came knocking at your door, as a Christian, in the circumstances of persecution, would you have let him in? I wouldn't. Who, Who does differently? Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to The disciples, he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So think about it. How does Barnabas find out about his conversion story? Barnabas obviously takes the time to sit and listen to him and get to know him. It's the only way you'd learn that. So Barnabas then is the the introducer, the go-between, the one who vouches for him and says, no, he's okay, I'll I'll make sure. Um, And we start to see this insight into Barnabas. So Paul disappears off the stage at this point, you know, exit left, Saul's gone from the picture. Tarsus out, you know, far, far from where Christians are. Now, recent research is actually showing that when Paul was off for his handful of years off, you know, Tarsus and beyond, that he was actually doing what he did later and was establishing churches. Um, but that's only something that, that you know, is fairly recent scholarship. So Paul's gone from the scene, um, but Barnabas is not. And so we keep then following through what's happening with with Barnabas. So Barnabas is this generous and humble man who sees potential in people where others don't. You start to see why he's called son of encouragement. Come over to Acts chapter 11. As I say, we're just following the story through. In Acts chapter 11, um, in the later part of the chapter, we come to the church in Antioch. So Antioch is further afield again, and in verse, let's pick it up at verse 20. There it says, some of them, however, men um, from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. The next bit that happens is curious. News of this reached the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So where's the headquarters of the church? Jerusalem. News finally comes through to to Jerusalem. And what's their first thought? How has this happened? What's going on? Is it genuine? Is it real? The same sort of questions we might ask um, had we been in their shoes. So, what do they do? Well, the brethren in Jerusalem gather together and they say, we need to send a man we can trust to check this out. Who are we going to send? Uh, who better than Barnabas? Barnabas is, you know, Barnabas is straight down the line. He's, he's honorable. He's honest. He's trustworthy. Let's send Barnabas. If he checks it out, he can tell us and we will know that whatever he says is right. Um, that's what I'm assuming the sort of conversation that must have taken place because why else would they send Barnabas? Uh, they want to check it out. So off goes Barnabas to Antioch. Verse twenty-one, twenty-three says, When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Then, verse 24, He was a good man. Talking about Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So here's this insight again into our son of encouragement, Barnabas, Joseph the Levite. Um, He's a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. You can trust this guy. And essentially what he does is he says, no, the Holy Spirit's at work, and he affirmed what was happening. But Barnabas doesn't stop at that, and this is, I guess, the important thing because you know sometimes it's 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 good to be an encourager, um, and in a sense, as you know, people that are part of a community of believers, we should always be about encouraging each other. But Barnabas takes it another step. Have a read of what it says, verse twenty-seven. No, verse twenty-five. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus. To look for Saul. So Saul's been off the picture, out of sight, out of mind, for his own good. But Barnabas finally says, I know just the person that could come and help me here. And going to Tarsus, this wasn't like a, you know, a five minute run down the road. Look it up on a map sometime and see you know Antioch to Tarsus. So he goes, he not only makes the journey, he looks for Saul, he finds him. And then it just says he brought him to Antioch. And then it says, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first and Antioch. He searches him out. He brings him back. And he doesn't just push him out the door and say, "Right, oh Saul, you've got the job now. I'm off to another town. For a whole year, they worked together. Day after day, Barnabas teaching Paul, guiding him, helping him, probably at times saying, Saul, just relax a little bit. And Saul was pretty wound up. Um, and what happens as, as this goes on is a shift happens over time because at this point in time, every time you see a mention of Barnabas and Saul, or Barnabas and Paul, as, as Paul becomes... Barnabas is always mentioned first. He is the senior one in the partnership. But what we will see as we we read on a couple more verses shortly is that this partnership shifts over time to where it becomes Paul and Barnabas. And Paul goes from being the junior one to the senior one in the partnership. And, And in that we get another insight into Barnabas. Teachers, here we go, let me talk to the teacher for a moment. You know, is it your hope as a teacher that you will always know more and be better than your students, or is it your hope that one day you might have a student who far outdoes you? It'd be nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. There are some that that you know love that sort of thought. There are some that try to stop it, um, and and probably not talking so much teachers now, but. Um, you know, I, I look at my, my son, he's almost 16, he's booked in for his elves because, you know, 8.35 on the day of his birthday, he's, he's going to have his elves. And I think if life just keeps on going on as it has, where the last generation just does the same as the generation before, how long do we stay here until Christ comes? At some point, there's going to be a generation that will do greater than my generation hope it's the next generation because I don't want to see this business as usual for the rest of my life I want to see more happen than what's happened in the past um, Jesus tells us it'll happen so why not I, I can remember um, at an elders retreat a couple of years ago talking about the um, you know, the role of elders as mentors of others in the church. And there was one old guy there who um, goes to Geelong Church these days and he's happy for me to tell the story. But he tells the story of how when he was a you know, 20-something young, young guy, he came into the church. And when he joined the church, there was a bit of controversy going on um, And he would would go to church on Sabbath morning, then over lunch there would be people that would get around him and sow doubts in his mind. Um, And one person saw this happening and realised what was happening. Because he said he was starting to to lose hold of his faith, he was starting to get shaky. One person in the congregation saw, saw that starting to happen. And he said Sunday morning he turned up on his doorstep, knocked on the door, just said, how are you doing? How was yesterday? And they got talking. The next Sunday morning, knocked on the door again, same question, and he said for about a year, every Sunday, this one guy would turn up on his doorstep and just be a mentor to him, just support him and encourage him. And he said for him, looking back on that, he said he didn't realise what was happening at the time, but he said looking back on it, he said that was what made the difference between him hanging on to faith and probably losing his faith because of this turmoil that was going on. One person. And so when you look at Barnabas here with with Saul, one person first vouched for Saul, one person went and looked him up, one person mentored him, one person then was glad when the student outshone the teacher. That was Barnabas story continues, and we should never stop in the middle of a story too long. Um, when you go, sort of roll on to, to Acts chapter 13, you, you see at the beginning of the chapter, um, you know, there's, there's prophets and teachers in the church, and it names a whole list of them, um, and then Down around verse two or three there, there's just this recording that says, "Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them." So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And again, those Barnabas and Saul, Um, they go to Cyprus. Uh, Why go to Cyprus? Who's from Cyprus? Barnabas. And there in Cyprus, Sergius Paulus is converted. And it's after that that for the first time we hear of Saul being called Paul rather than Saul, perhaps in honor of this this convert that's happened there. They they go on, um, and as the the story goes on, um, when you come to Acts chapter fifteen and the Council of Jerusalem, even though it started to switch from Paul and from Barnabas and Paul to Paul and Barnabas, in Acts chapter 15, it switches back to Barnabas and Paul for the last time because in the church in Jerusalem, Barnabas was still seen as the senior person in the partnership, even though, in essence, Paul had already taken over that senior partnership or the senior role in the partnership. And then um, what happens as we get to the end of chapter 15 is a really interesting insight into church life, into getting along with people or not getting along with people. Acts chapter 15 and verse 36, it just says, some time later, I don't know exactly what the time frames are, but some time later, Paul said to Barnabas, notice it's Paul that's now setting the agenda, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him, because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Now, this is how I imagine the argument went. John Mark is a cousin of Barnabas. So there's a conflict of interest, you could say, from Paul's point of view. Paul had taken John Mark on a journey with him already, one of his missionary journeys, and halfway through the journey the going got too tough for John Mark and he pulled the plug and went home. So now, depending on who you maybe identify with more, either put yourself in Paul's shoes or Barnabas's shoes and see how this argument might have played out. If you're in Paul's shoes, the argument might have gone like this. There is no way John Mark's coming with me. Tried him once, he failed. He, won't, he doesn't cut it. He will not last the distance. So we want to do a long journey. We want to do the whole lot with no breaks. We don't want to lose anyone in the process. He's not coming. Furthermore, Barnabas, he's your relative. Of course you're going to support him. You know, what do you think you're doing? Barnabas, on the other hand, acts true to type. Remember, Barnabas is the one that sees potential in people that others don't. In essence, he looks at them as... We hope God looks at all of us where he doesn't see what is, he sees what can be. And so Barnabas, in response, says, No, I know this guy. Look, he's young. Yes, he's inexperienced. Yes, he didn't make it last time, but I think he's learned his lesson, and I want him to come. Because I think this could be the making of him. And this argument breaks out. Neither of them are willing to give ground and this is where you could say no paul is is now the senior one in the partnership who should have given ground maybe paul should have because barnabas is the one that trained him and and brought him to where he was in a sense now not underestimating the work of the holy spirit of course but you, you see what i'm saying and the, the disagreement is just recorded in verse 30 as, as this. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Think about that for a moment. This is the beautiful early church. You know, the early church that, that was established by Jesus, the early church that you know, these are the people that walked and talked with Jesus. This is the early church that we aspire to be like. And when I read that verse, I think sometimes we are like. Um, they have such a sharp disagreement, they can no longer work together. and They go separate ways. But what do we learn from it? Well, we learn that even the most amazing people in history were also human, which is probably encouragement for us in that. But the other thing that we learn is that, in a sense, God brings good out of this unfortunate conflict because, in essence, he ends up doubling the workforce. Because what happens? At such a sharp disagreement that they parted company, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus again. And Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers, by the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So now you don't just have one missionary team you have two missionary teams and obviously they while they, they have this falling out that means they go their separate ways the task the, the the mission for which they are committed is bigger than their individual differences and maybe there's a lesson in that because you know as as believers You know, we we come together as a community having one thing in common, and that's Jesus. We will have disagreements at times. How we deal with those disagreements can make or break our faith, our church, our our community. In this case, both of them realise that even though they, they disagree, because what they are working for is greater than their individual differences, So they go their separate ways. And in a sense, if the story finished there, um, you'd say, well, okay, not the worst outcome. Probably not the ideal outcome, but not too bad. Barnabas takes John Mark and they go off on their missionary journeys. It's John Mark who ends up writing the Gospel of Mark. John Mark, as we read the Gospel of Mark, that is, we, we believe the young man that ran away without his coat, naked into the night on the night of Jesus' arrest and subsequent crucifixion. So he is a guy that he, he wants to be, he wants to be the one, but he runs away when the going gets tough. And Barnabas takes him. And the fact that we have a Gospel of Mark and all that would tend to indicate that whatever happened from here on. It was the event that made him. Paul goes off. um, And, you know, we know much of the story of Paul. He does amazing things, plants many churches. um, But Paul is, in in a sense, he's the confrontationalist. Uh, So when he's arrested in Jerusalem, even though he could have been released in Jerusalem if he'd played his cards right, he doesn't want to stay in Jerusalem. He appeals to Caesar because... Paul doesn't want to, you know, he's getting old, he doesn't want to just deal with the small fish, he's happy with the small fish, but he wants to go after the biggest fish in the world. He appeals to Caesar, the most powerful man in the world. And so, you know, he through his journeys and his shipwreck and, you know, all that happens, he ends up under house arrest in Rome, waiting to go to Caesar. And, in fact, that's essentially where the, the book of Acts ends. Um... There's no ending to it because, of course, it's still being written with church plants like this one and others around the place. The work is still going on. So now Paul is in Rome under house arrest and he's waiting to go and appeal to Caesar. He's ambitious. Ambitious for God, not ambitious for himself. He's ambitious because you imagine... What's going on in your thinking? If I could convert Caesar, imagine what that would do to the world. And there's even some scholars that suggest the book of Luke and Acts um, were in part to, you know, would have served possibly as part of Paul's defence to Caesar. And when you read the book of Luke and Acts, there are a number of of. Mentions of honourable Roman governors or honourable um, Roman centurions—that you know—I'm not questioning that the the veracity of, of what's said. It's true, um, but would have been received favourably by Caesar, and and may have made him more receptive to the, the overall story. That's a just an interesting maybe. So he's he's now Paul. He's under house arrest can't come anywhere, he can't go anywhere, there has been people with him supporting him um, and some of them have started to leave. He starts to feel perhaps a little lonely. One that's so used to continually being in in the centre of events, people all around, and now nothing's happening, he's just waiting. And the people that have been around him start to drift away and in 2nd Timothy chapter 4 uh, it's it's verses 9 to 11 if you if you want to pick it up there Um, we see what is as close to an admission from Paul that Barnabas got it right as, as you see this is what he writes do your best to come to me quickly For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. So there's one gone, and he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. So that's it. It's Paul, and it's Luke, and no one else. And then he writes this. Get Mark, and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Who's Mark? The very one. He rejected. The one that Barnabas had said, No, I will take him with me. And here's Paul as the end of his life comes near, and he writes this beautiful, get Mark. Bring him to me because he's helpful to me in my ministry. You imagine what that would have done for, for John Mark. You know, the the that falling out, that parting of the ways, all that would have been washed away in a moment. And we come back and we look at, at Barnabas and you say, you know, could could it be that without Barnabas you would have never had Paul? Could it be that without Barnabas you'd have never had all those letters of Paul? Could it be that without Barnabas you'd have never had a John Mark and the Gospel of Mark? And we'll never know. But what we do know is this guy that his his name's never up in lights. We don't even know him by his real name is known as the son of encouragement. Was influential in the early church in ways in which we only begin to guess. And I guess the challenge for us is, hey, how can we be sons and daughters of encouragement in the way that he was? Two passages I'd like to, just short passages I'd like to to finish with, um, talking about encouragement. I guess. Um, first one comes in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, towards the end of the chapter, Paul comes to the place where he starts to talk about the coming of Jesus, the second coming. Um, and a number of times he connects the second coming of Jesus with the need for encouragement. So, you know, the well-known Words in many circles, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Sometimes we stop there, but then it says, therefore, um, Therefore encourage each other with these words. And time and time again, Paul will link the need to encourage one another with the fact that Jesus is coming. And so there is this, this general sense of you know, a, a need for encouragement. And then if you kept on reading down into chapter 5, you'd see it repeated there. But come with me, instead of going into chapter 5, to Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, where we'll pick it up. Uh, well, let's go to verse 23, actually. He says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how we uh, may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but what? let us encourage one another, and all the more, as you see the day approaching. If I can leave a, a challenge with you, and you know, as you go into the discussion, um, you know, the, the question is: How can we go on encouraging one another? But even, even more, how can we be sons and daughters of encouragement in those that we come in contact with? with? So that's my challenge, my question, my my finishing line. You know, be sons and.